All right, it's season number two of the Give Me a Sense podcast. Mike, I'm with you, and I can't thank you guys enough for being patient and waiting for some of these shows to uh, to get released. And I know, you know, we finished off season number one with Rick Neuheisel. And after that show, I said I was going to take a few weeks off because of the holidays. And then I was traveling for the Peach Bowl and the Rose Bowl, which were incredible experiences. And then, unfortunately, I got sick. And I still haven't been able to fully kick this cold and still doing our shows at Pac-12 Network. Um, but it's been awesome to see the feedback that I've been getting from you guys on Twitter, people still listening to the shows. I encourage you guys to go back and check them out. They're all evergreen. They're sports, uh, storytelling shows where we talk to our guests about their careers and some of their experiences um, on the field of play. Whatever, whichever sport uh, they decided to participate and play at the pro level. We've heard from coaches, not to mention broadcasters and, and their career paths. And I'm always passionate about that stuff, not only because I do that, but because I get so many questions from aspiring broadcasters. So I always think it's helpful to hear the stories of some of the people that are doing it professionally. And that's what we're trying to bring to the table with this show. So thanks again for being patient. Thanks so much for spreading the word on Twitter at Mike underscore Yam. It's the same uh, username on Instagram. And then the Facebook page is Mike. Mike Yam. And it was really cool that, you know, the people and I, I had a, it looked like a mother daughter. I was on set at the Rose Bowl down in Pasadena saying that they wanted to hear more podcasts and I couldn't get down to talk to him. We were uh, just a couple minutes away before we had to uh, to go through our show. So I apologize if they're listening to this show. Thank you again for for reaching out and, and uh, coming by our set and at least screaming that you listen to the podcast. Definitely a really cool experience for me uh, to see that. So without further ado, I'll shut up. We'll get to our, our guest today who is none other than Chad Brown. There's nothing like being an NFL player. There's nothing that can replace that. There, you know, unless I go and become a 46-year-old hip-hop star, I'm never going to bring 65,000 people to their feet again. That's never, ever going to happen for me. And let me tell you, man, when it does happen when you're a player, it is awesome. It is so awesome. You make a play – and you gesture to the crowd, and the crowd is on their feet. I mean, is are you not entertained? I mean, it is so awesome. <laughs> At my shipping company, that never happens. It <laughs> never, ever happens. This is the Give Me a Sense podcast. Here's Mike Yale. End of message. Well, if you're enjoying the show, can't thank you guys enough for listening. If you're new, uh, welcome aboard. Remember, we've been going at this for a couple months now. I've had a lot of fun hearing a lot of the stories from a lot of our guests. Today, though, we're all about football. If you enjoy the game, I do encourage you to take a listen back to some of the guys that we've already had on. Ronnie Lott, Matt Leiner, Curtis Conway, who actually, by the way, is the son in law of Muhammad Ali, who would have recently had a birthday. And Seaway actually told a ton of great stories about Ali. So uh, just kind of cool to hear some of uh, some of his stories about him. Don't want to forget about Jeremy Bloom, Jake Plummer, Eric Allen, all those guys gracious with their time and all super entertaining. And today's guest is actually as accomplished a player as anyone I've had on. Outstanding college career at Colorado, four-year starter, national champion, second-round pick by the Steelers, three-time Pro Bowler, played in a couple Super Bowls, spent some time with the Steelers, the Seahawks, and the Patriots. It's former linebacker Chad Brown, who joins us on the Give Me a Sense podcast. Chad, it is awesome to have you on with us. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And running down the list, as you just did, of guys who have been on, uh, I can see the standard is pretty high to be on Yo, this podcast. Well, <laughs> it's a great group to be a part of. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's funny because you're one of the guys... And, and there's a common denominator with a lot of those names, all guys that, that I've spent time with the Pac-12 Network. You've been on set with us. And, um, you know, it was funny because when I was thinking about getting the show on, I know you have a ton of stories just from spending some time with you. And then a, actually a couple months ago, God, time is really flying. Actually, yeah, it was Pac-12 championship game. Uh, we had our commissioner's dinner and you and I, uh, you know, we're just kind of sitting there and, and having a drink and, and grabbing some dinner. And you were telling me a ton of stories. And in my head, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to take this break from the podcast for a couple of weeks. But I was like, as soon as I get back at it, I got to get Chad on. So I, I can't thank you enough for for spending some time with us. And, and it's uh, it's great to have you here. And it, the one thing I've never asked, and it's a great group of guys that that have been on the show that have played football, but I've never had the opportunity to ask any of them this question. So I'm going to start with this with you. Ballers on HBO. How realistic is that from the NFL perspective? You know, I think there has been, there has not been a TV show or movie that really captures 
the NFL experience. Um, you know, it's just too hyperbolized, whether it's ballers. Uh, gosh, who else? Someone else had one before. Uh, was it HBO? They had a football kind of uh, series that, that, that they did um, that was a, a drama of the, what's the Oliver Stone movie? Uh, any Given oh, Sunday. Oh, Any Given Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. So, you know, somebody... You know, all the absurdities that you see in those movies, you know, there's a guy who's sawing apart a Jeep in the middle of a party. You know, Was that LT? Like that. <laughs> yes, I think that was LT. Yeah, so uh, bits and pieces, sure. There, those are certain, certainly bits and pieces uh, have happened um, and maybe even continue to happen. But just the, the constant overwhelming excess of it all, not really real. You know, my, my daily routine as an NFL football player was really pretty simple. You know, I got up, I went to work. I was there till almost seven o'clock. After that, I went home to my family, you know? So, uh, you know, I'm sure there were some other guys who did it a little differently, uh, but nothing like those, uh, those shows portrayed it. Jed, I'm glad you bring up going to work and, and you're spending all that time there. Take me through a typical week because I've heard it and Eric Allen sort of chronicled his path and what it was like for him when he was playing. And and he had said, he's like, hey, things have vastly changed with conditioning programs and how guys analyze film and what those meetings are like. But for you as a player, what was sort of the standard week for you? Okay, uh, let's start on Monday. So Monday, uh, gosh, as a, as a younger guy, was a lot simpler. I was a lot healthier. As an older guy, uh, I spent some time on Monday before I got into the weight room, before I watched film, before I did anything else with the training staff, just kind of assessing, you know, where my body was, and then trying to work backwards from the next game. So instead of thinking Monday is the most important day of the week, actually the upcoming game, Sunday, Monday, whatever, Thursday night, whenever that game is, that's the most important day of the week. So I need to structure my week uh, built around giving me the best chance for success on that day. So that would kind of set the tone for my conditioning during the week, what kind of weights I was kind of I was going to do, what kind of therapies I was going to do, whether they needed to, to discuss with coaches about my availability for practice. Uh, you know, as an older guy, sometimes guys have a, a set day off a week that they get off, just kind of let their bodies recoup and recover. Uh, so once that was done and that plan was set, then I, you know, got to the weight room. Really, uh, you know, Monday's workout was a tougher workout, but certainly not, uh, you know, too crazy because you just played the day before. Then you watch film. And depending on the coaching staff I was with, some coaches gave you a very detailed grade sheet. Uh, other coaches, it was very minimal. Uh, I've always, you know, recorded each play that I, I did every game. I've got uh, records of all 15 years of me going down every play, uh, watching tape. I always thought it was important just to kind of compare and be able to look back and reference in the future years or maybe if you're playing a divisional team, how you played, what they did, what mistakes you made, you know, help you anticipate how they're probably going to attack you the next time you play them. Uh, so that was film study. Monday was typically a, a shorter day um, after film study. You know, definitely get with the trainers, get some kind of therapy going. Tuesday was a day off. Uh, as a younger guy, it was literally a day off. Um, you know, slept in, uh, didn't really even go to the facility. Once you get older, you maybe you go and you watch some tape. Once you get 10-plus years, uh, gosh, you're, <laughs> you're going in every Tuesday. You're going in every single day, at least from a therapy standpoint, hot tubs, cold tubs, whirlpools. And while you're there, hey, I might as well watch a little bit of tape. And while I'm there, maybe I'll go in the weight room and get a little bit of work done just to kind of work on some things. Um, and then, you know, of course, if you got a charity, that's typically what's scheduled for Tuesday, whatever events you had. And then uh, I got married after my rookie year, so there was always a honeydew list on Tuesday, the one day <laughs> off of the week. <laughs> how how uh, tough was it? Go ahead. For, I'm just curious with with because you just mentioned getting married after your rookie season. Family life as a pro player is that is that hard to juggle the demands? I, I got to think. I mean, we've had coaches on like Rick Neuheisel was just on, who I know you know uh, fairly well, and and you know we've had Rich Rodriguez and and Mike Leach. Although I didn't talk to Mike too much about married life, but um, you know those guys have kind of talked about their relationships and how understanding their their wives had to be with with the sport and the business of it. Was that sort of something that that you guys had to talk about before you got married? You know, my wife uh, was was always. Uh 
before we were married, just kind of very supportive and always kind of like my biggest cheerleader. And, uh, you know, she did everything she could uh, to support me. So, you know, it's hard to get enough rest if you don't have a nice soft home to come to. If you're going to go home and you got drama to deal with or other things going on outside of what would, you know, constitute a good relationship, then, you know, you're going to spend time out. And if you spend time out, then you're probably going to do some stuff that's not really going to be helpful to you playing your best games. You're not going to be eating the best food. You're certainly going to be hanging out in bars and clubs and doing stuff like that, trying to keep yourself entertained. So uh, a nice off home was great to come home to. She fed me really well, fed me great foods. Um, I think that was also a, you know, uh, uh, one of the things that allowed me to play as long as I did uh, was just having that, that home and a, and a supportive nature uh, uh, around me. So, um it's definitely, you know, difficult when you're gone every single weekend, even when you play at home, at least when I played, guys had to stay at the team hotel. Now some teams do it differently. So every weekend you were gone, whether we travel or home game, obviously Sunday's kind of eating up because you're just so focused on the game. So, yeah, there's a certain sacrifice on their part. Yeah, no, you know, you were talking about, too, the the film study thing, and you said you, you essentially were charting all those plays that you were involved with in – did did you actually chart them, or did someone else do that for you? No, I did it myself. I, I did it myself. Um, early on, you know, uh, it was things were kind of rudimentary. A coach would hand you uh, the, the play sheet during the game, and it was written by some uh, assistant coach in pencil, and that was kind of the details of it all. Towards the end of my career, you know, I played 15 years, so I get, definitely got uh, much of the, the digital age towards the end of my career. You would get a, handed a a play call sheet, that not only had just what we called uh, defensively, but, you know, the offensive play, the offensive formation, you know, how many yards they gain, how many yards they lose, what was the personnel on the field. So by the, you know, the end of my career, you got this incredible snapshot of information with the play call sheet. So it's very easy to fill in your remarks about about your play, uh, mm-hmm. successful tackle, assisted tackle, sack, whatever the case may be, and also any notes you took wrong step, my eyes were in the wrong place, I, I misread my key on this play, that kind of stuff. How, how did you know to do that? How did, I did know everyone to do, do that? Uh, not everyone did it. Uh, you yeah, know, I, I got lucky say, enough to, to break into the NFL with a, a, a great team, the Pittsburgh Steelers. So in that defensive you know, meeting room, you know, it was Rod Woodson and you know, Hall of Famer Carnell Lake, uh, you know, uh, Joel Steed, my buddy from Colorado playing nose guard, uh, who I played nose guard behind, for four years at Colorado, so a very seamless transition to playing behind that guy. So uh, Bill Cower, Dick LeBeau, so great coaches, great players. But then I'm in this linebacker room, and I am with uh, what uh, a group of guys that ended up being voted from the NFL Films the seventh best linebacker group ever. Um, so I was pretty, you know, pretty lucky to join that group. So I'm in there. We're being coached by Marvin Lewis, who goes on to having a you know, very long coaching career now with the Cincinnati Bengals. I'm with Kevin Green, Hall of Famer, the, the sack master, the sack mercenary for hire. I'm in the room with Greg Lloyd. Greg Lloyd, for five years, was literally the baddest man in football. Um, uh, just an amazing guy to be around from an attitude, demeanor, personality. This is how we approach this whole thing. This is how we play this game perspective. Um, and then I'm next to LeVon Kirkland, who, you know, probably at some point was the, you know, the biggest, the most athletic linebacker perhaps in NFL history. We played together in Seattle, I think in year 12 for him, uh, maybe it was year 11 for me. He was over 300 pounds playing linebacker, but could still run around and make plays. So great group of guys. So just trying to keep up with those guys, I was not nearly as big as LeVon. I wasn't as mean and, uh, 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 you know, powerful as Greg, and I certainly wasn't as skilled as Kevin was. So I had to come up with something that I could do to allow me to kind of keep up with those guys. And the mental part of the game uh, really became, you know, something I leaned on early just to be able to, you know, say, hey, this is a group of linebackers that I'm with, and I go out and I occasionally make plays too. Was that something that was also – in your mindset when you were at, at Colorado? I mean, you guys obviously had a ton of success there, a national championship. I mean, that was sort of the, although the job Mike McIntyre has done at least recently, that's sort of seeming like they're turning the corner here. But there was a lot of, uh, you know, lean years after you guys and your group had, had finished up there. So I'm just curious from a, a college standpoint, was it like that, that cerebral sort of approach to the game when you were at CU? 
No, no. Uh, I'd say I, I was I was not there. I certainly wanted to know what my assignment was. I certainly took pride in, in not making mistakes, but uh, that type of approach didn't happen until I got into the the NFL. Um, you know, I, I'd like to think I would have been a much better player in college <laughs> if I if I would have done that. Uh, but you know, uh, it's it, it takes time to be a professional, and you know, at every step along the way throughout uh, the game, whether we start in flag football to, you know, beginning in Pop Warner and maybe you move on to, uh, you, you know, some older Pop Warner teams in high school, college, and to the NFL, there's a there's a weeding out process and the guys have to figure out how to take the, the next step. And luckily for me at Colorado, I had great players around me. Uh, I was fortunate to be, you know, pretty a pretty athletic guy. So I don't think, uh, you know, I really understood how important that part of football was. And also, I mean, it was the old Big Eight. You know, the, everyone ran the same four or five plays. It was, you know, option, fullback dive, option the other way, and some kind of pass to a tight end. It wasn't very complex football, not what we see today from so many spread teams and such quarter, quarterback-oriented offenses. Chad, is it intimidating when you – I'm thinking back to Eric Allen, right? So he was – he came on the show, and I had said to him, you know, what's it like when you when you get into that room? Because you were just describing being around all these great, talented – linebackers and you realize that 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 these guys all had had serious game and uh ea was telling me sort of when he got to philadelphia it was a different mindset where he initially was a little intimidated and then when you start playing you kind of forget about it but when you get into that room and you know that you're now a professional player you know what's the is that an intimidating experience being around you know grown men who have achieved a lot of success on the football field oh yeah, I mean, just sort of, just from a locker room perspective, there's grown men in there. You're coming in as a 21 year old rookie, and there's grown men in there who are having conversations about their landscaping and private schools for their kids. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm just just trying to put some giant shiny rims on my car. You know, we're just at very different places in in life. Our focuses, our perspective, everything is different. And these guys, you know, uh, are professionals. My locker was just a couple lockers down from Dermani Dawson, another Hall of Fame guy who was, uh, you know, by the time I got to the Steelers, was married, had a family, very successful, very grown-up guy. So just trying to fit with those guys, plus the, the playing perspective. The Pittsburgh Steelers were a very good team. The defensive standard in that room was very high. So for me to fit into that room just as a rookie and then end up starting as a rookie, I remember that first start and just being – you know, just trying to somehow <laughs> calm my nerves and steady my mind because it wasn't like, hey, man, you're going to be all right. Rookie, don't you mess this up. Rookie, don't screw up out there. You know, and so <laughs> I'm going on the field thinking, I have not earned these guys' trust. I have not earned these guys' respect. I've got to find a way. I've got to find a way to play good enough to do that. Um, and uh, that first game, I ended up getting, I think, a sack and a half, caused a fumble, made a couple of splash plays. Dirk certainly made a lot of mistakes, but uh, I didn't let them down from a playmaking and from an energy perspective. You know, my knowledge of the playbook was not where it needed to be, but, you know, the Steelers' defense is really not a, a playbook thing. Even now, it's it's really based on how hard you go out and play and do you make plays, and, and luckily for me, in my first start, I did. Chad, when I introduced you, I had said some of the things that you've done before. Yeah, right. I mean, four-year starter at Colorado, um, obviously started, you know, when you as a rookie in the NFL, played in a couple of Super Bowls, won a national championship when you were at CU. Is there a memory that stands out of of maybe just an emotion when you get out into the field for your first game at Colorado, your first NFL game, your first Super Bowl, that national championship? Is there a common denominator? Uh, in, in terms of that emotion when you step out onto the football field? Yeah, yeah, those those big moments, those those special, special games. Um, yes, there's a, there's a common denominator, there's a common e- emotion to it, there's a common, at least for me, a, a, a feeling of, of you know, amazement, of, of luckiness, but at the same time, a, a sense of, you know, I'm ready to, to do this. So, you know, going back to my high school, uh, my high school, John Muir High School in Pasadena, California, plays Pasadena High School in a game called the Turkey Tussle. And it's played in the Rose Bowl. And uh, wow. 
growing up in Pasadena, you know, you hear about this game your entire life. Who's going to win the tussle? You go to the barbershop as a kid, you know, that time of year, and it's it's around Thanksgiving. So in November, people are talking about who's going to win the tussle in each in each school. So growing up, I always wanted to play in that game. I never really thought I could be in the NFL. I never really thought I could get a college scholarship. I wanted to play in the turkey tussle. So to go into play in this game that really is a part of Pasadena history, you know, as a 15-year-old, you know, playing in the Rose Bowl. Are you kidding me? You know, being in the Rose Bowl locker room, you know. So uh, that big game experience uh, started for me in high school. Then in Colorado, the first time we went and played Oklahoma at Oklahoma, you know, and Boomer Sooner and Barry Switzer and, you know, all that amazing Oklahoma talent. And I'm going, I get to play in this game, this you know, amazing stadium. I get to do this and then to do the same thing at Nebraska and then playing a national championship at the University of Colorado against Notre Dame to win that game. And then as a Pittsburgh Steelers to play in the Super Bowl. So all those amazing game moments, um, they, they stick with you forever. It's, it's amazing that the emotion you feel as a 15-year-old, you can still feel that same buzz of energy and excitement as a 37-year-old my last year playing in Pittsburgh, I'm sorry, in New England, and feeling that same type of emotion. Are there chills when you step out into the field? Jake uh, had told me, because you said Rose Bowl, and uh, Plummer had said when he when he was at ASU just going through the tunnel, and he said he'll, it, it was unlike anything. He said it was almost like he was walking on clouds, like it was just this surreal moment and the chills and the nerves and the excitement all kind of bottled into one. He said it's so hard to explain just sort of what it's like to hear all those fans at the Rose Bowl. I got to imagine that's the same thing every single week in the NFL, certainly at a Super Bowl, definitely at a national championship game. Is that is that a good comparison? Uh, it, it, it is, and I, I think if, if I'm going to, you know, every single big game experience, you know, can't be the same. So if I were to put one on top of the others, as a Colorado Buffalo, uh, when we were on top of things and the stadium was packed with your brothers who you go to school with, who you live with, who you spend all your time with, and we're all waiting behind Ralphie to go out and take the field as Colorado Buffaloes. Yeah, that Jake Plummer, you know, that feeling of uh, my feet aren't even touching the ground. My emotions are so high right now. I can barely feel myself. Yeah, that is a that that is a very surreal experience. The others, you know, come very close. Uh, but I think if I had to put one on top, that would be it. And I can I can certainly echo uh, Jake's experience. That is it is amazing out of body experience. Those those very special moments right before you take the field. Chad, a uh, couple stints with the Steelers, too, uh, which I think covered five seasons, eight with Seattle, uh, two with New England. I, there are unreal coaches that you, I mean, this is co- sort of, you know, in a lot of ways, I mean, the coaching trees of these guys is is pretty impressive. The Cowers, the Holmgrims, the Belichicks, the, the LeBeaus of the world. It, I got to imagine they all have had a ton of success, but they all probably do it a little bit different. What made each one of those guys different and at the same time successful wow it's it, they're all such great coaches and at some point you know they're good coaches because they know the x's and o's but uh really their teams you know certain play with a, a certain personality that they get from the head coach um and for for bill cower i'll start with him first it was really uh, about understanding the, the the emotion and the physical part of, of football and he wanted us to go out and play harder than the other team. We're going to overwhelm this other team with how hard we play. Of course, we want to execute and we want to do things at a high skill level, but we want to overwhelm them with that. So, you know, if you've watched NFL films, you know, so often Bill Cowher would get into that first uh, kickoff or kickoff return huddle. He was a former special teams coordinator with the Kansas City Chiefs, um, you know, and say, we're going to go down and punch him in the mouth first. You know, and for you know, our, I'm sure our, our lady listeners that just sounds crude and absurd. <laughs> maybe even some for some guys too. But look, that's the mindset and mentality you have to have. And so that's how we played, and that was really what I would take away from Bill Cowher when I've coached, um, you know, Pop Warner teams, in which you know I'll brag about myself. We were very successful here in the state of Colorado, back-to-back state championships. Um, I, I tried to make sure my team was always the harder playing team, based on that Bill Cowher mindset. Uh, to move on to Mike Holmgren, 
you know, Mike Holmgren is very much a, a systems-oriented guy coming off the Bill Walsh tree, so it's very West Coast offense. It's very precise. It's very professorial. So if you see Mike Holmgren on the sideline calling plays, he's got his play sheet, and he's got his glasses on, you know, looking like a you know giant football professor out there. And it was always very precise. Things were always very detailed and playbook-oriented. Uh, so it wasn't a, about an emotion for him. It wasn't about the raw physicality. It was about the, the execution of it all. If we go out and we execute these plays from this playbook at a high level, whether it's Jerry Rice or you know Daryl Jackson, uh, a receiver we had with the Seahawks when I was there, this play is going to be successful. Um, and, and I certainly took some of that as well, understanding that we have to understand the, the playbook and the scheme of things to be successful, and I implemented some of that into my coaching as well. Uh, moving on to Bill Belichick, if I were to sum his thing up, obviously we all are familiar with do your job, but a more descriptive way of describing his philosophy and system is we're going to make the right play. And I think I'd actually said this on air with you on the Pac-12 uh, network is so often in meeting rooms, players will say, well, coach, when we're watching tape, I was just trying to make a play. And Bill's answer was always, why don't you make the right play? So no matter what player you are, no matter what the situation is on the field, there is a right play for everybody to make. It's not necessarily the spectacular play or the athletic play, but it is the right play. So if I'm the right guard and it's third and one, there is a correct play for me to make in that situation. And one of the reasons why they've been so successful with all the turnover that they've had, all the different guys, you know, they're going into the Super Bowl. And I think from the Super Bowl team that won two years ago, they've replaced 30 guys. So with all that turnover, they teach everybody, regardless of ability, how to make the right play in each situation. And that's a huge reason why they're successful. It's really about teaching players how to understand football. There's only a certain number of situations. And with your position, there's only a certain number of things that are going to happen over the course of this game. If I can teach you those, you'll make the right play and will win ball games, which they do at an incredible rate. And then moving on to uh, Dick LeBeau. You know, I had the privilege of doing an internship this last summer with the Tennessee Titans. And I had a number of teams who had offered me internships. And, you know, it was as difficult as it was to turn those teams down, I thought the experience of shadowing Dick LeBeau for five weeks was going to be amazing, and, and it really, really was. His ability as a guy who's been in the NFL, I think next year will be his 59th year in the NFL as a player or coach, to relate to players and get the best out of them through his personality, through his ability to relate to people is, is really amazing. He certainly has an amazing system, that zone blitz system that he and Dom Kafers came up with, and it certainly, uh, you know, uh, has proven to be extremely effective. I played on those those defenses. We were the number one either yardage defense or scoring defense a number of times. But really, it's about his ability to relate to players, and that through that relationship, get the best out of them. Um, so all four guys, amazing guys, um, all four. You know, I think have uh, Hall of Fame credentials behind them. Obviously, Coach LeBeau was already in. I'm sure uh, the other three may make it in at some point. Um, so very lucky to play for those guys and learn those lessons from those guys. I'm going to ask you about that internship because I'm fascinated by by the prospect of a guy that's done what you've done to then going back to the game. So I'll get to that in a second here. But Belichick, you described, you used the word teaching. And, you know, at Pac-12 Network, we do our training camp tour where every August we we go to every single campus and we watch practice. We watch what their coaching staff does with their players. And then we do a show from every uh, from every campus. And it's fascinating to me to see what coaches are actually teaching, you know, in the thick of things, on the field, literally telling guys foot placement, positioning, positioning their body, what they want to see them do on the football field. And it doesn't happen at every stop. And yet you just said teaching and Belichick. What, it, can you explain like what, what at the pro level, like what are, what's being taught at the professional level? Oh my goodness. I, I, I've been around some, some coaches who really just, just keep it simple and they want you just to go out and play hard and fast and not think too much. So their 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 system is really a a player 
based system. I don't want to overwhelm you with all these thoughts. I don't want to overwhelm you with all this information. And then there's the more teaching type of coaches, particularly Belichick and, and the Patriots, where they want to give you all the information, every single bit of information that you could possibly use so you could diagnose things. Uh, Teddy Bruschi, one of the greatest Patriots ever, um, but only made one Pro Bowl. So he was not a, you know, a truly great linebacker, but if you think of Teddy Bruschi, he made plays in these amazingly critical moments. And those plays weren't based on his off-the-charts athleticism. They were based on the things that he was taught in those meeting rooms for those specific situations. So it's more than just, you know, I'm going to teach you the, the game of football. Well, the game of football changes every single week. What works against Peyton Manning is not going to work against Michael Vick. So the teaching aspect comes into play. First, those guys have to, those coaches have to learn that team or that players. And then they have to come up with a scheme that they're going to teach us. So first, they've got to teach themselves. And it's amazing what they're able to pick up players' strengths and player weaknesses. The Patriots' motto has always been, let's take away what people do well, force them to do things they don't do well. So first, they come up with that. Then they teach us those things. These are the things these guys do well. This is what he wants to do. This is what he doesn't want to do. Let's force them into these situations. Um, so it's a it's an amazing environment to be around because you do learn so much about football, but you also learn so much about people and how to teach people and how to lead people. And I've taken so many of the lessons that I've learned from those guys about teaching people and brought them into either my coaching or into my my companies, my businesses, and trying to you know. I don't think I'll ever get to the level of, of what the Patriots have accomplished, but taking a little bit of that Patriots knowledge and injecting that into uh, my business life and my coaching life, and hopefully it gives me some success. Belichick, I think for a lot of our listeners, is a guy that everyone's very, very familiar with um, because of the success that he's had getting the Super Bowls, winning Super Bowls, Tom Brady, the Patriots. I think everyone relates to those things. You, you were in that environment. You were around those two guys. What's a team meeting like when Belichick is in the room and and maybe Tom Brady's presence on the practice field like what what's what separates them from some of the the other really well-established guys that you've been around I'll, I'll take it back to the the teaching and treating everybody uh, with the same level of accountability and the same level of expectations Tom Brady sits in the front row of the Patriots meeting room in the front row, not in the back with all, the, with all the cool kids, in the front row. Bill Belichick yells at Tom Brady, whether they go after the meeting into Bill's office and Bill says, hey, you know, I'm sorry. I don't know if that happens, but I know he yells at Tom Brady in the meeting. That sets a tone for everybody. If Tom Brady can be yelled about, yelled at, if Tom Brady is held accountable for his mistakes, when Bill puts up the low lights from last game and Tom's awfully thrown pass or interception is put up, Tom gets treated just like everyone else. That sets a level of accountability for everyone in the room and in the organization. No one is special. No one is above being coached up. Um, but the uh, the amount of information that you are asked to digest, understand, and regurgitate in a Bill Belichick-led meeting is the highest level I've ever been around. So um, I'm there year 13, and I'm you know I'm playing linebacker, but I'm also playing some special teams. And he would do, you know, a, a call-out session. All right, Chad, stand up. All right? Kickoff return. Uh, we're going kickoff return right. Who are you going to be blocking? I got the L4 on the kickoff coverage team, Coach. Who, what number is that? 58, Coach. What's his name? That's Matt Chatham. It's New York Jets. You can be with, here with the New England Patriots. Special teams guy, you know, career special teams performer. His favorite move. He's going to try to set me up leaning one way and do that Reggie White thing and club me by with his left hand. That type of information that I was taught, didn't expect it to regurgitate out, you know, at a moment's notice. That happened all the time in New England. And that didn't happen at other places? Definitely not to that extent, not to that level. Uh, you, you, you would maybe given a test the night before the game, and as a linebacker group or as a special teams group, you may have to write out some written answers on the test or maybe answer some questions in the meeting, but not in a team meeting would people be just called up and you know essentially asked to be accountable for their information, for their study, for their playbook information that week, for their opponent information that week. You will be asked to talk about it 
in front of the entire team. And that's at random. It's essentially a, a pop quiz for a player. It's essentially a pop quiz for a player, and it, it was at random, but you certainly walked into each team meeting expecting it to happen because you didn't want to be the one guy who didn't know because that never ended well. <laughs> Which leads me to that next question. What happens if you get it wrong? Uh, you, could, you could be deactivated. You, they could come up to you after the meeting and say, you know what, we're going to sit you down this week, we're going to play so-and-so. You could be deactivated. The, the, and if you were to look over the Patriots' you know, activation list from you know, week one all the way through week 16 and, and into the playoffs, there's always going to be you know, five or ten guys that are going to be different every single week, sometimes due to players' issues, like you know, not being able to understand what your assignments are that week. Uh, could be the you know being late. We've seen them deactivate guys for being late, um, or this could be a, a matchup issue. Hey, Chad, you know we would normally have you up, but this guy, you know, this is a really young special teams group we're playing this week, and as an older guy, we don't think you can run with them, so we're going to sit you down this week. We're going to play so and so on your spot because he's younger and faster. And so I, you know, the, there could be a, a, many different reasons why. Chad, was the mental part of the game in New England? Was it? Was it? more demanding and maybe more of an emphasis on what you knew between the ears versus your physical talent? Yes. Uh, but maybe not even your true mental talent, you know, cause you, you didn't have to be a, you know, 10 out of 10 mentally to be a new England Patriot. You didn't have to be an incredibly sharp guy. It certainly was helpful, but really, what they wanted more than anything else was the ability for you to be the same all the time. So uh, if you were a seven athletically, they could work with that because they could put you in a position where you could make plays with your seven athletic ability. But what they couldn't have were guys who sometimes played well, sometimes didn't play well, guys who sometimes knew their assignment and sometimes didn't know their assignment. You had to kind of be a constant level of a player in order to be incorporated into the game plans because you had to be accountable. And Bill Belichick explained it to me, he said, Chad, you know, if you if I if it's third and eight and I want to throw the ball to a receiver, I'll take the guy who's a seven every time on the on the athletic charts because I know what he's going to do. I know a route where he can get open. But if I've got a guy who's sometimes a nine but also is sometimes a two then I don't know what to expect, and I don't know what kind of chance for success we're going to have because are you going to be a 9 or are you going to be a 2? Then a quarterback doesn't know either whether you're going to be a 9 or a 2. But if you're a 7, I'll figure out a way to make you successful. You just be a 7 every single time. You do your job every single time. I'll come up with something that will allow you to get open. So essentially he's, he's eliminating or drastically reducing unknown variables. Absolutely. Is sort of what you describing to me which is kind of cool and you can see why it's played out the way that it has and you you guys actually went to a super bowl you were on that team um you, you've played in two super bowls glenn parker who i know you know fairly well one of uh, our colleagues at pac-12 network played in four super bowls and was winless in, in all of them and he actually was a guest on the on the podcast as well and took me through sort of the ups and downs and you can even still hear the pain in his voice on not all of them um but at least a couple of them where he, where he says i think he's still resentful is not the right word. It is, um, there's a pain of being so close, feeling like you were the better team and not winning. But taking some of the things that you just told me about Belichick, when you're in New England, how does preparation for Super Bowl change for a Patriots team that's got Tom Brady on it compared to a playoff game or a regular season game? Or is there just no difference? You just They just continue to... Uh, dial in and focus in as the week progresses. But at the same time, there's a you can only pull the string so tight. And yeah. a, a coach who's been around as long as Belichick has has a really good reading of his team. And you know, there were times when the Saturday night meeting before the game was a comedian. He sensed the team was tight, so he brought in a comedian. And we laughed for 30 minutes. And that was more useful for that week than, you know, forcing us to, you know, watch two hours of tape before the game. Uh, we also watched, uh, you know, very historic, iconic uh, prize fights. 
you know, Hagler Hearns, um, and he would kind of stand off to the side and kind of, you know, uh, announce it and then point out these critical moments and then each guy's reaction to these critical moments during the fight. So just like a football play, he'd have the clicker and he would pause it and talk for a couple of seconds and set up what's about to just happen or recap what just happened. You know, and then so the, that, the, the theme that week was, you know, how do you, how do you battle back? How resilient are you? What do you do when you literally get punched in the face? So it, 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 it wasn't just, you know, hey, we're going to, you know, suddenly cramp down on you guys and force you into film rooms and force you to watch all this tape. Uh, again, it was each day, how do I get the best out of my team? And that's going to vary from, from game to game and time to time. Um, but the constant of accountability, being prepared, giving yourself and your team the best chance for success, which is kind of the opposite way of saying of, of eliminating and minimizing risk. And, you know, giving each guy a way to go out and do their job and do it well. Jed, I know this is going to be like a really broad question, but are football players sensitive? And where I'm going with this is you have so many guys that are, you know, sort of you got your practice squad guys, you got your full roster. I mean, it's just a huge team compared to, you know, a basketball squad, for example, where a coach can can have a really good feel of what's happening because it's a smaller group of guys when it's so big. I feel like, you know, you can't ride every single guy, right? I mean, it's just not going to happen. And yet you got to know which guys you can go and, and be on pretty consistently. Um, Curtis had said this. He's like, I wanted coaches who would come at me really hard. And and yet I, I got to think there are some players that, that wouldn't want that, not because they couldn't handle it, but because maybe they were so hard on themselves, they didn't actually go and need that. So when you, I mean, you've played with so many great guys, some of the best guys, were, were they were they sensitive players? Wow, I think in general, football players tend not to be sensitive because you spend a majority of your week, you know, watching yourself on tape, and there's a guy in the back of the room who's telling you, you know, well, that sucks, and that was awful, and what was that, and what were you thinking here, and why would you ever do that? We don't teach that. We don't coach that. Uh, Chad, I, I, this, that's so bad, I can't even coach off of it. We're just going to skip that play and move on to the next play. That was off. So you hear that enough times, hopefully you develop some thick skin. There were some guys who were more sensitive, and I certainly had teammates who pushed back at, at, at coaching. Um, you know, but to, to, your, to your point, you know, some guys were so self-driven and motivated that they you know, didn't really need to be coached. Kevin Green took it very seriously. Kevin Green you know, took notes. Marvin Lewis did not need to yell at Kevin Green. He absolutely didn't, and he also knew that Kevin didn't like it when he yelled at him. So, <laughs> uh, here's a story: uh, we all of us linebackers are in a meeting, and I think Kevin and Greg had each jumped offside at least once, and maybe even one of them had jumped offside twice uh, the day before on a Sunday game. This was a Monday meeting, so Marvin Lewis gets up in front of the, the linebacker room. And he says, we got to stop jumping off sides. And he's looking at LeVon Kirkland and myself. And, you know, both LeVon and I are thinking this. We can't say it, but we're thinking, wait, I'm an inside linebacker. I'm five yards off the ball. Why are you, you yelling at me and looking at me? Greg and Kevin are right there. You can tell them. You, you can talk to them. But, you know, that was Marv's way of sending the message without coaching some guys who um, – you know, I guess when we think of sensitive people, we, we think of them as being so soft. These were guys who were sensitive because they took such amazing pride in themselves and in the game and the way they played that, you know, it was difficult to hear that they made a mistake because they really didn't want to. You know what I mean? It wasn't a, 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 a sensitivity like, I don't care what you're saying, why are you talking to me? But much more like, I already know I made a mistake. You know, you telling me doesn't make it any better. I'm going to try to find a way to fix it kind of thing. Um, but it also was, you know, some of the guys who, um, you know, I know this is a little bit of a, a controversial topic after uh, George Carl's book and some of those quotes in his book, who grew up without a male figure in their life. And they had difficulty hearing harsh or, or you know, what could be construed as, you know, insensitive words from a, from a, from a man. 
And so I had teammates who that was difficult with. And, you know, I've had, sometimes I would step in to the coach or to the player and kind of explain the situation. It's like, hey, coach, you know, this this guy, you know, grew up with his mother and his grandmother. He never had a, a strong male in his life. When you do that, he, it just shuts him down. you got to approach him a different way to get the best out of him. And also talk to the player and be like, hey, man, I know. But, coach, he's coaching you because he wants you to be good. If he didn't want you to be good, then he would stop coaching you. And that's as a player when you really got to be concerned is when they stop coaching you, which means they don't care, which means you'll probably be cut sooner than later because they care about everybody on the roster who they want to keep. Uh, so, you know, there's a couple of different ways to, you know, talk about that and discuss that. Chad, a couple of minutes ago you had said, um, you know, you had done an internship. How, exp- <laughs> I mean, how does that happen? I mean, you have successful businesses. You, you obviously are, are working in the media world as well. So what, what compels you to take an internship with the team? I uh, was covering the, the Broncos. I live here in Denver. And my old teammate, Rod Woodson, was on the Broncos coaching staff for the summer. And, you know, I knew Rod was doing broadcasting as well. It's a very similar post-career path, obviously. Better career, better career path, post-career path for him as well. Um, but he said, hey, you, you ever have any interest in coaching? I was like, you know, I've always, you know, thought I should wait for my kids to get out of the house before I get into that. Um, this was my son was a, probably a freshman in, in high school at this point. He said, well, you should probably do a couple of internships now just to kind of get your name out there, get your feet wet, see if you want to do it. So when your son is off into college and you're ready to dive back into it, if that's what you want to do, you've, you know, seen what it's like and you've also met enough coaches you made a little bit of a name for yourself. So I thought, okay, you know, this is that's interesting. So the next year uh, I, I ended up doing an internship with the Seattle Seahawks, which was an absolutely amazing experience. Being with Pete Carroll and that staff, they do a, a great job. Uh, the ownership, Paul Allen, they do an incredible job with that facility and how they run the team and how they treat the players. It was just a, a real joy to be there and to coach. Um, so I thought the next year I'll do another internship since my son was still in high school, and then where would I go? And I ended up talking to the Steelers and the Patriots and the Bengals because of Marvin Lewis and all these guys who knew me around the league. But I thought, as I discussed earlier, that being with Dick LeBeau would be an amazing experience. Uh, and, and it really was. And to contrast the experience with the Seahawks, who were just coming off a very tough Super Bowl loss to the Patriots, and uh, you know, really a team that you know was could not have been more confident, that knew that they were headed in the right direction, that had incredible players, all pros, and things were all in order. Versus going to the Tennessee Titans this last year, they were coming off a three and thirteen season. You know, Mike Malarkey was really kind of there as an intern coach. You know, the ability to see very different NFL locker rooms, very different NFL coaching staffs, and really compare and contrast those experiences because, you know, Pete Carroll couldn't, you know, treat his team as Mike Malarkey was because of where his team was. And Mike Malarkey couldn't coach and treat his team as Pete Carroll did the Seahawks because of where the Tennessee Titans were. So how these guys accomplished very different goals while still trying to go out and win football games and build a team, you know, it was an amazing time to, you know, look back and contrast those very different styles. Did you like it? I loved it. I, I absolutely loved it. You know, as a former player, you know, I think that that football player inside of you always lives on and the broadcasting, while I certainly love it and, and it, it keeps me close to the game, there's difference between, being outside the locker room interviewing somebody versus being in that locker room after you just won an amazing game. Uh, I've been on the inside. I, I know how it feels. And, uh, to, yes, to answer your question, I absolutely love both experiences. Um, and, you know, coaching may be in my future. Chad, I've had a few people um, in the broadcasting industry have said to me before, it's like, you know, if I wasn't doing this, I don't know what my skill set what skill set I have that would uh, make sense in another industry. And, you know, I sort of chuckle and I laugh when I hear that because I think in some ways it's true, but, you know, there are certain things that are really specific um, that you're doing on a job, but then there are things that are sort of that you can take and, and apply to other jobs. And yet to play a professional sport, I've heard this because I've been around some guys and they say, you know, oh, what you can do, what you did at the NFL level, like how do you how do you transfer that to corporate America? You you have businesses, you've gone down the media route. You know, there's so many players in so many sports. There's only so many on air jobs, right? Not everyone can be on air, for example. Why is 
the transition from being a player to transitioning to that next career as difficult as it is for a lot of pro athletes? Well, your first point about skill transfer, that is certainly real, and, and it certainly does does apply. But I, I think, you know, part of the difficulty in the transition for players is there's nothing like being an NFL player. There's nothing that can replace that. There, there, you know, unless I go and become a 46-year-old hip-hop star, I'm never going to bring 65,000 people to their feet again. That's never, ever going to happen for me. And let me tell you, man, when it does happen when you're a player, it is awesome. It is so awesome. You make a play, and you gesture to the crowd, and the crowd is on their feet. I mean, it's, are you not entertained? I mean, it is so awesome. <laughs> At my shipping company, that never happens. It never, <laughs> ever happens. And so, you know, whether we close a big deal or, you know, we finished uh, this quarter, you know, 25% over last quarter, it's awesome. It's very cool. Yes, great. I'm, I'm really that's – I'm so happy about it. But 65,000 people didn't jump to their feet and scream my name. So trying to replace that is really futile. But I think it takes guys a while to recognize that that chapter is, is over. It is, it is really done. And I've got to find a way to do other things. And my goal when I retired was to somehow be more successful. And I chose a very open-ended word like successful with my post-playing career than I had when I was playing. More success post than I had when I was playing. And I certainly had, you know, a career that I'm very proud of. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I'm looking to somehow top that. And, you know, success can be measured different ways. You know, do I become some awesome broadcaster with it. Hey, that'd be cool too. Do I go on and become a coach and influence lots of young players' lives and allow them to be more successful and all that stuff? Well, that'd be cool too. You know, do I you know do some amazing business things? You know, or do I just you know give back and it's through philanthropy and that's how I meet a greater level of success. So you have to kind of you know put things in a proper perspective. And I think first is recognizing that NFL thing. That ain't ever going to happen again. So let's find something else, and let's find different ways of defining success. I'm never going to be – well, I can't say never. I would certainly like to, but the chances of me, you know, getting $5 million a year to go out and do something, that's pretty remote. I'm going to keep working that way, and that's still going to be my, my goal and direction. But I also have to make peace with, you know, those NFL paychecks. They're not going to be around for me, really. Jeb, before I let you get going, I can't thank you enough for, for spending the time that you have here, but you're describing this, and I know you're, you're successful, the businesses that you have, and, and obviously working with you on air, um, you know, what you bring to the table there. So you're right, you're, you're not getting, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 people aren't going to jump off your feet if you, you finish off a good show or, or uh, you know, the business is thriving. So what is the drive now? For you like what what is you've experienced that you've had success you've played in the biggest games in in really in sport i mean the super bowl doesn't get bigger than that you played in two of them so at, at this point of your career like what's the thing that that pushes you the most just trying to get better just trying to get better the 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 lessons of the game that's what i use instead of trying to rely on the you know the the outside stuff of the game, the you know the fame, the the the, the money, the notoriety, you know that part of it because I, I that part is that chapter is done. But the lessons you take with you forever. So you know when when I hear people talk about football and concussions and the future of football and talk about football in a in a negative way, um, I, I certainly do want to recognize the health risks and. We certainly need to do better as a football community dealing with brain injuries and continue the research. So I'm not discounting all of that. But when I have a chance to talk to a mom who's concerned about her son playing the game um, or even, you know, bigger than that, folks who, you know, who uh, have an opportunity to, you know, influence more people than just one single mom, I tell them the lessons of the game, they last you forever. And football is unique because it's a, it's a team sport but then it requires so much of you. You can't be successful at this unless you pour yourself into it. You are going to get knocked down, but you have to find a way 
to get back up. So when I had my reptile business and we had a fire that destroyed the business, well, that knocked me down. But i got to get up. There's another play coming. I've got to find a way to get up because they're going to snap the ball again. The lessons of discipline, the lessons of sacrificing yourself for the team, lessons of me, now I'm a boss, I have to sacrifice certain parts of my life to, for the betterment of my company. You know, in football, you're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to be hot in the summer during training camp. If you play into the playoffs or, you know, you go deep into November, you're going to be cold at some point. How do you deal with that? How do you get comfortable being uncomfortable? That's a part of being an adult. So these lessons that the game teaches, they'll last you forever. The money probably won't. The fame won't. The notoriety won't. But the lessons of this game, they really are what informs the rest of my life. And, you know, so you say, well, how do you keep, you know, striving for it? Well, I do that because I learned these lessons of football that somehow I got to I got to work today. There's work to be done. I got to give myself best chance for success tomorrow. Jed, did you just say reptile business? <laughs> I did say reptile business. I owned and as in like crocodiles pro- and snakes. Crocodiles and well, I didn't do crocodiles. Uh, I owned okay. pro exotics reptiles. And we were a commercial reptile breeder, and we produced thousands of baby reptiles and sold them all across the world for the pet trade. Uh, I specialize in a couple of really, you know, colorful, easier-to-keep species. Um, And again, I sold them to zoos and institutions. Some of my animals were at Mandalay Bay at a, you know, exhibit they had. Um, I've sold to doctors and and, and bikers and, and moms and teenage boys. Uh, really had a lot of fun producing uh, those reptiles. It was a very, obviously, unique business, um, but it was uh, actually one of my first businesses that I started. And because of the, you know, different, you have to you have to produce the reptiles. You have to manage the staff. You have to manage the business. You have to market your animals. Because of all those different tentacles into the business world, um, it was a really great starter business for me uh, to allow me to do the things that I do now in business. Okay, all right. I, I, I know I said I'd let you get going, but I am fascinated by this. How does an NFL guy who decides he wants to get into the business world pick reptiles as the cause you, you must I'm assuming you didn't know anything about reptiles, correct? No, I did. I, I, I was oh, a I've always been an animal lover. Okay. Uh, my entire so life. I've always enjoyed animals. Yes. And I grew up uh in, you know, Southern California. And there was there was some canyons and hillsides behind me, so I was catching frogs and snakes and lizards when I was a kid. Uh, always watched um, Marlon Perkins and Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom as a kid, kind of the precursor to uh, you know Steve Irwin, uh, rest in peace. Um, so that, so it was always this animal part of me. Uh, so someone in college had a couple of snakes for sale. I ended up buying those snakes. Ended wow. up breeding those as a college student when I was playing college football got into the NFL, got some money in my pocket, decided to build a business, and that's what I did. Wow. Did you have a, 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 a teammate or, or um, someone that played in the NFL that was a mentor for you in the business world? No, no. Uh, there's certainly guys who were successful in business and guys who I you know, would, would talk to and chat with, but I, no real NFL business mentor. Uh, I, I think my business mentor, my business school was really – that reptile business, because again, it incorporated every different, wow. almost facet of business. I'm in the, you know, again, I'm in the production. I got to produce things to sell. I have to market them to to sell them. I've got to manage my staff of people who really, you know, touch these animals every day. I got to get them to perform at a high level for my animals to breed. And I've got to, you know, manage the the, the business aspect of it. So, you know, all those different, you know, ways and and arms of business, uh, really. Certainly made a lot of mistakes, but luckily it was a smaller business when I was making those mistakes. Uh, it was a great business school, kind of the school of hard knocks. And you couple that experience with the lessons of football, football uh, yeah. I think that makes for a pretty good background and education to to be successful in business. Uh, you've been tearing it up uh, post-NFL career. And, and Chad, I, I can't thank you enough for, for stopping by with us. Great hearing your story. Your experiences are, are really unique uh, and different than some of the other guys that we've had on this show before. So thank you again for, for sharing some of those stories. Absolutely, Mike. Thanks for, for having me on. It's been a good, it's been a real pleasure.
Well, thanks again for Chad for stopping by and sharing some of those stories of his NFL time, not to mention his post-NFL career. Not many guys, uh, you know, when they finish the NFL are able to dive into business like Chad has been able to do and be successful at that and obviously juggling uh, his broadcasting duties. So very cool to uh, to hear and see the success that he has had. Uh, once again, appreciate you guys listening to these shows. Continue to share them. I know I haven't put up a show or posted a show in a couple weeks here, um, but it's been awesome to see you know, the continued conversation on Twitter and social media, the Facebook post, um, you know, to see some of that stuff has been really, really uh, gratifying and, and certainly humbling that you guys are, are willing to spend the time, uh, you know, 45 to 45 minutes to an hour to listen to a lot of these shows with so many different podcasts. I know you guys have plenty of options. So hope you're enjoying these shows. Continue to tell your friends, rate, subscribe and review. Don't be shy about it. Thanks again for listening.